Okay, it's a death sentence for this week. Um, okay, what's happening in the news? Nothing. It's it's, it's good again, folks. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of thinking that the world is kind of crazy and fucked up, and online can make made us all idiots. But it's kind of returned to normal these last couple of weeks. It's been pretty people just talking, sharing ideas, uh, sharing pictures and stuff. It's it's actually really good on online. So yeah, I think I think we've gone back to normal. Um, you, you've you've been in you've been in really different spaces than I have, but that's good to hear. That's good to hear that normal persists somewhere. Yeah, I, I'm just in denial. I, I can't I, deal with Meltdown May at this point. We've we've already done an entire show on Meltdown May, and it's just and we're like, already behind. We're already behind. We've we've missed we've missed Cliff Wife, which isn't really a Meltdown, but was beautiful. That I, I count that it was, as part of Meltdown. That reminded it's Meltdown May cinematic universe. That adjacent. that. that that feels that feels fitting. It's like a tie-in. It's like the Netflix uh, tie-in to, to Meltdown May, um, where it's not going to be referenced in the broader uh, Meltdown May canon, but it technically is part of it. I just thought that was uh, such a beautiful reca- recapitulation of um, some of the non-toxic bits of uh, online culture, like that first magic you get when you find that there's other weirdos across the world like you. And you, one, you find out everyone's a weirdo, not just you and your friends but two you find out there's other weirdos like you and you can all bond over weird ultimately non-harmful stuff like a woman tumbling very gracefully down a very small hill and absolutely losing her mind um and everyone's just like this is a beautiful piece of cinema i feel i feel moved by these characters it's a it's a literary drama in like two minutes love it and everyone's just like why fall off cliff and everyone's clapping and we're like yeah oh wow Cliff, Cliff Wife, yeah. Newly added to the canon of online wives. And now, like a year from now, we'll be saying, "Hey, do you remember Cliff Wife?" And I'll just and someone will be a like, thing. "No, I don't." And you'll be like, "I don't want to explain it." Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But um, so we have someone from who's also online with us in the trenches, sharing our hopes, our dreams, our, our tears with us online. Um, Hussein Kasvani is the editor of Mel Magazine, which is like, at, might be the only good online general interest magazine at the moment. Um, yeah. Like, like, I think it is. And um, yeah, go to melmagazine.com if you haven't already, because it is actually so good. A beautiful way to pitch it, that I pitched it to people, is what if Vice didn't suck shit? Like, it's that same kind of... That same kind of vibe of you can yeah. hit anywhere and the tone doesn't necessarily have to be high or low. It can be anything it wants. But it doesn't suck uh, suck garbage out of a pig dick and it doesn't it wasn't founded by a fascist. And so that's just nothing but pluses. No, it was it was founded by the Dollar Shave Club. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean I can't yeah, I can't say too much about that. But, uh, about Vice uh, and shit or Dollar Shave Shave Club? Oh, you know, I mean, I've, I've kind of like I've done work for both, and like kind of so, and you know, like the amount of NDAs that kind of go around. So oh, actually, yeah. I can't say no, I can't say shit about anything. All I can That's say fair. Very grateful for having a job. I find it really wild, and you don't have to comment, and I literally believe that you can't. But I find it wild that Vice uh, saw the looming unionization. Saw it, <coughs> coalescing 
fired literally everyone involved in unionization, both the organizers and the people involved, and then did vertical integration of all of its brands and is somehow like, I don't see why people are mad at us. What's the deal? And it's like, okay, man, that's wild to me. Yeah, I I I don't know of a story about the kind of unionization advice specifically all i know is that like it's very much part of this playbook and like yeah. having and i'm sure we'll talk about this more like but having kind of been someone who has grown up in an immediate environment which has kind of entirely been online and like entirely been shaped by these fights um all of it makes like you know it makes sense and for them it's very much just like you know for them, it's just very much like they know that they're in the shits, but this is like a sort of like last ditch attempt to make it work. Yeah, it's been sort of this uh, beautiful, um, darkly beautiful because it's exploitative uh, move by larger media groups, like with Condé Nast picking up Pitchfork, which I literally like belly laughed so hard that my partner came downstairs to see what was going on and i was like probably the most horseshit pig dick business acquisition that i've read about in my field like (laughs) an absolutely stupid purchase um but uh the the same kind of the same kind of maneuver where these larger media groups really benefit from the online from online space remaining in a perpetual wild west type state Meanwhile, worker organization and worker unionization obviously giving more firmament to like, no, this is a serious job vector and plays by similar rules to other serious job vectors is a big threat to precisely why online is so enticing, especially media groups that used to rely on print. And so they not only had to deal with news unions, but also had to deal with print costs, distribution costs, all that kind of stuff. Mm. That's really boring, unfortunately. Like, it's a really obvious and boring conflict. It's just also one that fucks a lot of us up. <laughs> so, after, uh, in addition to being um, Mel's editor, a host of Trash Future, which long-term uh, listeners will know, provided kind of early boost to this show when Riley came on it and then your other co-host Nate Bethay came on here to talk about uh, Cherry by Nico Walker which is still one of the best books of last year mm. and very smart guy and mm. um, and Riley got me into a techno band I like I actually like techno oh, now. I'm a techno no. guy now he did, he did that you're a techno guy now oh. well, not entirely there's like one art... Ben, ben Clock is like a good artist I like yeah yeah he's great Oh yeah, oh, so all techno guys I love now. techno. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that he's radicalizing you. That's all I yeah. can say. I'm I'm uh, techno pilled now. Um, <laughs> so, in addition to doing all that, which is all amazing, and and you could very well rest on your laurels after doing both of those things. Well, probably not the podcasting because that doesn't count for anything. Yeah. But um, you've also written a book. I um, have. Yeah. The book is Follow Me, Aki. Hmm. And it's it's pretty fucking awesome. And, Thank you uh, so much. Yeah, well, it is um, because I think it's fair to say you bring a lot of that skill <coughs> you've got you use at Mel and mm. focus it on like something that I have very little knowledge about, despite having like Muslim family members and yeah. living in a predominantly Muslim area now. Like I know so little about like many many people i know in my person in my life and like their sure. like inner 
religious lives. Sure. Mainly because I'm trying to be like trying to be polite and ended up just doing that white thing of just ended up being ignorant. <laughs> so yeah. So thank you for that. Thank you for turning me into okay. now. I'm one of those white people who believes he knows loads about uh, subjects of, of, about pe people of color, and I can yeah. like you know say all these words to them and you know be like you know be one of those white people because they're, they're really the best ones they're the ones that uh yeah well that's like. the, that's my that was like my main audience like i really just wanted to kind of get like white kind of people who live in east london um and various other kind of places that seem to be like east london um mm -hmm. to give them a new lexicon in which they can order indian food finally <laughs> And um, yeah, so um, before we go into the book, why don't you just tell us tell us a bit about yourself that <coughs> I haven't kind of covered already? Because I, I know like your CV. Yeah. But apart from that, who 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 are you? What, yeah. Where, where do you come from? What do you do? It's it's hard because like so much of my life for the past kind of two bit years have sort of been defined by pretty much what you've read out. Like, um, you know, I've spent kind of the past two and a bit years working on this book it's supposed to have been so I guess like I guess to kind of start this off what I would say was that back in 2015 I was working for like a new media company of which I am bound by an NDA not to name specifically um, am I bound I, by an NDA because I could say it and then people know um yeah, I, I mean, I can say it. Like, it was BuzzFeed, right? Okay. Um, I can't, I can't, like, you know, I've got, you know, the thing about these... Oh, NDAs, yeah, of course, yeah. Like, the kind of line between what you're allowed to say in terms of, like, company reputation something else. But anyway, that's, that's another topic. When, back in 2015, I was hired by BuzzFeed to cover, like, religion as a religion reporter and my main focus was supposed to be on kind of muslim communities in britain and the idea was that the way that muslim communities were covered in britain was sort of very either didn't exist at all or it was very reductive it was very much just like trying to figure out who was an extremist and who wasn't and basically like we had you know, the the editor in chief at the time was like, we have no idea how Muslims in Britain like live their lives. So like, your job is to kind of cover them, and it was such like a privilege to do that because like it was you know the first time that I had kind of been you know I I had heard something like sort of positive about this community that I'd grown up in and this opportunity to kind of really change the narrative. I was in that job for about a year and a bit before I got let go. And part of the reason for that was because like being a religion reporter is really hard in Britain in that like there aren't really a lot of us around. And it's also really difficult to like establish a beat in such a short amount of time. So there was like technical issues why like that was the case. There was also like this case of um why uh what's you know the stories that you'd be pitching and the stories that you'd be writing were you know they had to go through a gatekeeper and in this case the gatekeeper was like a white secular man right like that was my editor at the time and like no kind of you know no um negative like feelings about him like he's a very good and talented editor but it was definitely like i definitely like felt this dissonance um between like what i was experiencing and my experience as both like a reporter a person 
and someone who came from this community uh, and having to kind of like write towards for like a largely white secular audience that kind of makes up what like the BuzzFeed readership is. So when I let, when I kind of left, I had a bunch of these stories in the back of like these, this notebook that I kept. And I'd always like kept thinking to myself, like these stories are ones which I just like had picked up while I was like traveling or while I was kind of working on stories, which was like, Hey, this is a really interesting thing that's happening in like Muslim communities, but I don't really know how to make it like news. I don't know how to make it relevant to like, you know, white secular people. So I'll just keep it in here and maybe it might be useful one day. So when, Michael Dwyer at Hearst commissioned me to write the book. He was like, these stories are really important and they're really, um, they're like really interesting and you should tell them and maybe they weren't right for Buzzfeed, but maybe they were right. For, maybe they're right for like a piece of big written work. So that was sort of like, yeah, so thank you. So that was like sort of a genesis of how the book happened. Now I know that I didn't really answer the question, something that I'm very good at not doing, buzzing. Uh, <laughs> So uh, you'll get you'll get to deal with like a lot of that, um, you know. But I, I guess like what I wanted to say was that like you know it's really difficult to actually answer that question because for so long my life has been defined by like those things. So all I would really say at the end is that like I'm a writer, I'm a producer, um, I am obsessed with the internet. Like one of the kind of key thing to that has that underlined this book and like why I chose to write it was just that like I. I'm uniquely kind of obsessed with the internet, but also like it's played such a fundamental role in how I've grown up and like giving me an opportunity to grow up. Um, I, you know, I come from, I grew up in like a quite a quiet suburb just outside of London. And I was also one of those people that wasn't like really allowed to go out much when I was younger. I had parents who were very strict. Um, I was also very shy for a lot of my life. So like the internet was like a really, fundamentally like important way in which i lived my life and grew up and like learned about things and met people um so and i think that's like not only informed like my work that i've done if you like read my mail stuff as well but mm, it also kind much. of in, but it also like informs my worldview of like i think there's a lot of you know there's a good you know there's a lot of people who kind of see the internet as like this dark place and this place where only kind of like evil and mischief of the mischievous forces live, but actually like it's such this powerful so it was such a powerful tool and such a important tool especially for progressives and like left-wing people um like it's such an essential part and i feel like you know i i feel like just generally there's very little understanding of how it works and like the emotional capacity in which like you need to invest into the internet in order to kind of let it you know help help you know in, in order for it to help you achieve your end so yeah i would just say that i'm just like a fucking like internet obsessed weirdo <laughs> who who works a lot these days yeah same um <laughs> yeah i think that's kind of true for both of us and probably yeah. like the big majority of the audience here yeah and i feel like it's a generational thing as well like you know this is just like a thought that i have which is that, you know, you, you know, these, you know, our, I, I guess our podcasts have like a crossover audience of people who tend to work in like managerial or office based jobs who spend a lot of time online anyway. And for whom like online culture also informs so much of like their daily existence and their daily like, you know, reference and everything. And I think that especially if you're a progressive, especially if like you're a progressive or if you're on the left, um, where I think like when so much of like print media and just like 
culture itself is sort of defined by like right-wing axioms that like you know so much of like left-wing culture flourishes online and it's like the reassurance that like that type of movement still exists there yeah i at, at my office the other day i was when theresa may resigned like the the difference in tone between what i was talking about online and what i was talking about face to face with people yeah is it's like two entirely different human beings were there yeah. like i was like oh yeah she she had a, a tough job yeah yeah face to face and online i was like hey ho bitch is dead but, um, yeah yeah the yeah. two genders yeah those are they're my two genders yeah, and I, um i i live in i live and work um in and around washington dc and that's uh pretty much a fascist hellhole um and yeah the amount of um it's it's not it's not quite code switching that would be a way to put it but a similar kind of idea of the way that i can present myself within the cloister of friends or an online space versus my day-to-day life especially since i'm routinely in contact with like yeah. military contractors and in the back of my head i'm like oh wow you'd be first against the wall motherfucker but yeah. I, you can't say that <laughs> that's in a, a military contractor like yeah. that's not that's not something you can do and yeah the um especially for me i grew up in a semi-rural part in the american south um and so access you'd get certain glimmers of things you'd witness either certain injustice or read about it but there's very little connection around you and i think there's a lot of you can even witness this there's a lot of resentment towards predominantly a predominantly white urban mindset that Mm. attempts to colonize not just urban space but also online space uh we see this with kickback from like a recent brouhaha in america was some like urbanite brooklyn dsa types getting mad at um american southern dsa types because the organizational angles have to take a slightly different shape you don't have you have to build coalitions in a different manner and so yeah the the way that those spaces can even be fractured or isolated the yeah you bear witness to the power of something like online where you're like okay well i don't i don't have the ability to reach uh communion very easily in you know environment x or environment y but now all of a sudden these things are at my fingertips i can get reading lists of um like yeah uh, thomas sankara and angela davis like like that just immediately someone sends you a pdf you don't have to worry about um like how how the fuck am i supposed to learn any of this stuff so i got you (laughs) yeah Yeah, i guess your your book is about how british muslims do do the same yeah so so what's the big difference in like pacey white boys like us becoming commies online and Uh, how um like how the people like i walk past every day uh who i never interact with anyway because i'm shy like that how how are they how are they developing themselves online i'm so glad you asked that question because actually like it's so important um because you know yeah because like i feel so much of the book is about like in itself like digital culture and how it works but um and as someone who's kind of went through both like both phases of like becoming like a left wing like becoming like socialist on like via the internet and also like try working out like religious identity online like there are definite similarities but i think like the main difference for most people that i interviewed and this isn't like the same with everyone was that like 
inherently there's a difference between choosing an identity. So I think with like with political identity, there is this aspect of choice. There is this aspect of like the reason why you're kind of looking towards like left wing material, whether that's like YouTube videos or whether that's like on Twitter communities and stuff, is <coughs> this kind of like societal um you know the societal lived experience of you know i don't particularly feel like my life is going the way that i planned or like the way that like is necessarily comfortable to me i definitely like feel an absence of material um what you call it like satisfaction and what is kind of informing that or is there anyone who like feels the same way um you know but and then as the kind of process goes on like you know i feel like people kind of choose to identify themselves or choose to kind of identify with particular people or like particular like left-wing movements and it's a very kind of individualized experience for the most part the difference between that and like the people that i speak about is that for most of them the identity was sort of already given to them so like religious identity is you know for the most for most people that are in the book like they were born as muslim or they were kind of given this religion as muslim and it's informed so much of like their kind of growing up their childhood experiences their interaction with the state is like a big one too like if you have a muslim name then um you know what regardless of your religiosity like you know the security state will still see you as a muslim and like your experience within that is heavily tailored towards that so as a result these people are using the internet in a very different way which is like how do i take this identity that has been given to me something that i can't get rid of or run away from um but also that i don't really want to run away from how can i kind of use technology to reconcile that identity that has been given with me with like my own personal like sense of self and like my personal needs and like what i feel like my relationship with the world is and stuff like that so the internet kind of provide you know they can it provides a pathway to communities of people who are like sort of dealing with the same conflicts and same kinds of struggles um same types of questions that like might not be easily asked within like the physical infrastructure of a religious organization um you know so many things as you as as you may have kind of gathered from the book and then reaching the kind of like how you know how can i reconcile myself and my desires and who i want to be with this identity that's been given to me and the ways in which that manifests is like inherently different depending on what person like you're speaking to because religion is also like a very kind of like abstract thing as well and that was one thing that i was trying to show like so much conversation about religious identity that we have i think is very much like <clears throat> like uniform or um you know or like they're kind of these guide you know these neat lines in which we kind of define what a religious person is you know even if like there's more than like one kind of archetype there's still you know maybe four or five rather than like a huge multitude and it's also like a story about how these people are using technology to kind of challenge those types of like binaries or challenge those sorts of um hyper like hyper compartmentalized identify like recognizable identities and in so doing like assert themselves if that makes sense it does now i see what you're saying which is that um to be a real socialist you have to be born a socialist and that anyone who picks up <laughs> online is a half socialist a bit like blade yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no it's blade. true and right. like you know, um, and you have to come from like Durham. Um, there's not really like any, you know, any way around that. Like you come from 
uh, quote unquote city, then you know you may as well just join the Tories. That's, I that's like the true. notion of Blade as the Lib Walker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I was, I was I was thinking about Blade the other day, and I was kind of like, oh, you know, like I don't I don't know if I want the MCU to like reboot Blade. I kind of do, but like because the the mo- I I, can't, I haven't seen the movies for a long time, right? But from what I get, from what I remembered, like the Blade movies kind of sucked, right? Yeah. Um, a little. Uh, so, right. yes, you're right, but also they were very lit. And so that's the two. That's <laughs> those, are, those are the two wolves inside of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Blade wrestles Triple H, who is a vampire. Oh, my no, God. Wait, Ryan Reynolds wrestles him. That's what it was. Right, right. right. And that's oh, pretty dope. I forgot Ryan Reynolds was in that as, like, proto-Deadpool. Yeah, they I, gave him I, a beard and a crossbow. I've literally, like, just before this, instead of doing, like, you know, research or rereading a book or anything, I watched Venom. Oh, my God. Can we, like, not talk about the book and just talk about Venom? Yeah, I, um, I was watching that, and I was like, I came to a realization, which is that, well, at first I was thinking, you know, why are you doing this? You're a grown man. You have a master's degree. You should be writing a book or doing something useful in your life. But no, then yeah. I like squashed that and thought, wow, if Deadpool had a Venom symbiote, yeah. that would be so extreme. Yeah. They did that in the comics recently. It was called what? Venomverse. And everyone got a Venom. Everyone. <laughs> a Venom, not a symbiote. Specifically, it was Venom. Venoms from different universes attaching themselves to literally everyone. That's the only that's the only exception I have to like the multiverse thing. Like I feel like the multiverse is such a cop out in so many ways and it's such like a shitty like movie trope. And like I know that people will like try cancel me for that, but it's true. But in the case of Venom, like I do <laughs> I, I, I will make exceptions for, like, the multiverse thing. Well, um, to, to briefly yeah. use fancy brain words to uh, to pitch multiverse stuff to people who don't like it, um, uh, this will be deeply ironic, because what I'm about to say is wicked dumb. Uh, <coughs> multiverses work best in a storytelling engine sense if you use them to prey upon notions of plurality, um, mm-hmm. and especially mass plurality, where you can have, like, panoramic shots of 1,000 different supermen, and some of them... Are, like, uh, they have in one universe right now, there is a black, psychedelic Muslim Superman. But he is Superman. He's the Superman of that world. He's not modeled after him. He is Kal-El. Um, and so you can do stuff like that. Like, Into the Spider-Verse is a beautiful example of just, yeah, like, yeah. really fucking out there. Um, you can't use it for boring shit. Basically, like all good genre storytelling, you have to be really, really dumb. Like, the, <laughs> you have to have that Blakeian sense of ecstatic storytelling, which is another way of saying tragically dumb like terminally stupid what if we had 70 ghost riders and they all became one big motorcycle and you're like that's it that's the one that's the movie (laughs) i also ask uh, people with religious beliefs this is uh, the notion of a multiverse compatible with your religion (coughs) oh my god oh my god i should just ask this i should ask this on my islam q a.com um you know, if if like the um, Large Hadron Collider like proved there would definitely yeah. be a multiverse or something, 
Would that like yeah, mess yeah. up a bunch of religions? This is about yeah, the no, dumbest no. question you've ever asked. No, anyone. no, no. This is, no so this is, <laughs> yeah, this is this is so smart because actually, you know what? And like, I, maybe I'll link you to a video of this. Like, this has been debated before. Like, so there's a section of the book where I go to like Speakers Corner in London, which is like this place where if Twitter was a real place, like <laughs> that would be it. It was just oh, no. like full of like it was just it is exactly how you think. So I spent like I spent a few weeks there kind of on and off and Oh god, I'm so sorry. It was it was an experience because you're it so was so strong. I want you to know that you're so strong <laughs> and we admire you. It's you know, not you your know, fault. You know what was it's weird? Not what your was, fault. What was weird was that like I spend so much on so much time on Twitter every week, right? And I justify it on the basis of, oh, I need it for work, even though I, like, I absolutely don't. And, like, <laughs> you know, I'm just using it to, like, make excuses to kind of tweet about, like, body fluids at, you know, seven in the morning. Okay. Um, so you spend a lot of time on Twitter and then you go to this place where it's like Twitter in real life and you realize... And, I, you know, I also had really bad phone signal during that time, so I couldn't even go on Twitter in speaker's corner i had to just like stay around and there's like a lot of standing and you're like going in and out of a bunch of like these debates of people who are just um <clears throat> like unhinged and people who are like exactly who they're trying to kind of be online and everything and it's become like more intense because speaker's corner isn't just this place where you go and say your piece it's also a place where you like go become like an internet celebrity right so Everywhere you go in Speaker's Corner, there are people with like camera phones or with cameras. It's like it's like that. I hate to be that guy, but it's like that episode of Black Mirror when um, <laughs> when your yeah, phone when your phone is actually the cop. But you know the episode where like um, that woman's like in that kind of theme park simulation, and everyone's kind of following her with those like with their mobile phones. Oh, um, it's yeah, yeah. it's it's like that in real life. It's just completely surreal. Um, but anyway, like during in Speaker's Corner stuff, like you can have those sorts of like zany conversations. And one thing that came up more than once was this idea of like, you know, does the multiverse like undermine the um, traditional like Judeo-Christian or like, you know, um, Kalam like uh, argument about create, you know, uh intel not intelligent design is it the religious one is intelligent design right or like creation yeah Yeah. um but the creation story um and i think for most religious people they would reject the idea of a multiverse because it kind of interferes with this idea that like god created like one universe like created the universe and created like a single like universe in which people are um measured by the nature of like their past religious stories so in like the christian period you know the multiverse would basically really mess with the idea of like the sacrifice of jesus for example it would really mess me up with the idea of like the revelation of the quran because it would necessitate the concept that like another universe would exist where that wouldn't happen or like the quran was like revealed in like iceland or something like that like it would necessarily you would it would, you would necessitate that and it would like undermine the entire story because you could basically like say that oh you know um, all the all these kind of myths all these kind of like stories all the kind of history that like underlines um, religious practice and like how it's been practiced for like generations um, is completely like you know it's it's just relative because there is another universe where like that doesn't even exist and there's another universe where it does exist but like 
it's being done in like a different part of like the world and in this world like elon musk is like somehow like the grand mufti of egypt um so so so, yeah it'd be like coolest thing right um so i feel like lots of religious people are like no multiverse is just like would are just incompatible with faith and like we should not entertain that idea yeah the uh this is interesting because the vatican also has had like so uh the vatican being both uh one of the most profound long-term uh narrative uh (coughs) social devices that that we've made not saying that in a disrespectful way but just the way that um things like uh talmudic thinkers getting together and debating religious concepts has this like beautiful very human shape to it um they had a lengthy like two month long debate about if there are aliens would they have an alien jesus or would it be the same jesus and if it was the same jesus would they know about him or would all (laughs) aliens go to hell or if aliens don't know about jesus do they go to hell or do aliens also go to heaven maybe they go to and they yeah they had they had this really lengthy um discussion precisely because of the stuff that you were kind of um hinting at that it provides these serious challenges but they can't like and it's weird because you can see uh faiths that you wouldn't necessarily think would be flexible enough to to handle that kind of stuff like we see debates about that sometimes in like say uh hindu communities and they don't have a major that wouldn't provide a major fluctuation for them same with buddhist communities it doesn't really deeply affect those um but the Abrahamic ones have this, like, well, I guess he'd be god of all of them. There wouldn't be, like, 90 gods. That would be crazy. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, it's uh, it's an interesting one. I feel like the answer can only really be, like, determined by uh, the, um, the, uh, the most holy place in the world, which is in California in Joe Rogan's garage. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, again, listeners, if any of you have a line on some DMT, please let us know. <laughs> come, on, come on, we really need to talk to machine elves. There is a non-zero chance that we will live stream us mapping out the DMT universe with the aid of the machine elves. We want to ask them questions like, is Venom real? <laughs> yeah. Imagine how blown you'd be if you were religious and you found out this is the universe where religion is real and you get to feel bad about certain things and yeah. there's another universe where venom is real and you're not in that one and you're like fuck <laughs> <laughs> like... yeah uh, that was such an awesome film man i just like i could talk about venom for hours it's so, it was so good it was so like I'd i watched tom hardy do literally anything yeah yeah it's just i don't know it was like such an incredible and also like in in Venom, like, did you watch any of like the press junkets that they did for that film? Like him and Riz, him and Riz Ahmed, like, had the best time doing the press junkets because like they just didn't take any of it seriously. Um, and you could tell, like, because Tom Hardy's like the best person at just like not giving a fuck about anything. Um, <laughs> like if he's like if he's bored in an interview, he will like show you he's bored. And throughout the whole of the press junket, it was just like he knew that this was just like a ridiculous movie. Um, and he knew that like this was a movie where it wasn't going to be like career defining that he um, but he got paid like a shit ton to do and yeah I would encourage you to just like watch the press stuff that like he that he did during Venom because it, it was just yeah Sounds beautiful and uh, he's gonna be he's gonna be in the MCU now apparently so uh, oh I, oh my god I he hope is. 
Wait, no, I've got to double check that right now. There are rumors um, going around that he's going to appear in the third Spider-Man movie as Venom, obviously. What? What? Uh, that'll be so because, like, also, I feel like Ven- I I also see Venom as like an extension of the Sony Spider-Man like universe that they were trying yeah, to do, was, and like that was their plan, right? They, they were gonna, he, he was yeah. going to cross over with like. What's this Andrew Garfield? One thing one thing about me is that like I'm a I'm an Andrew Garfield apologist in like every circumstance. And I think oh, that God. he should have got that he should have gone on to play like the MCU Spider Man. I don't give a shit like if he looks it's like, like 40. he's like, yeah, I don't give a shit though. Like he should just like he was he was like he was the he was a good Spider Man and no one gave that's, him credit for it. That's uh, such a wrong opinion that I have deep respect for you. One, I read you I read your beautifully written book, which to loosely tie back to that be- beautifully written, deeply human story, like had this rich, uh, beautiful creative nonfiction writing, very rich. And then I hear you say this bullshit. Oh, this it's is amazing. Like, yeah, People I've, have I've, angles. I love it. I've, I've, I've had this take for years, and like every time I tweet it's it out. People just get mad at me when I tweet it out. Well, they should. Like, it's, it's, I understand it's why they're mad. Wrong. But it's yeah. not wrong. It's not wrong. He was, <laughs> he was objectively, he was good. though. He was good. He was fine. The Sony universe was fine. But he he deserved a lot better. And like he deserves to like replace Tom Holland in the MCU. I don't give a shit. Like if he looks forty, like just just put him in there. I don't. I don't care. You saw the second one, right? Like you uh, didn't only watch the first one. Oh yeah, yeah. I saw the second one on the plane. I saw. I That's mean, where like, everyone's seen it. It's yeah, never I, been. It's never been seen uh, below thirty thousand feet. No uh, one's ever been like, "I'm bored." You know what? I should put on the second Andrew Garfield <laughs> Spider-Man movie. You know, it was just about a guy who was just going through stuff and like you know, <laughs> he was doing Spider-Man things. Um, and I enjoyed. I, I, I enjoyed like the super complicated backstory. Um, which, which, like, <laughs> you know, uh, in which, like, he goes into an underground railroad, but no one finds, and then he finds out that, like, his dad actually made him Spider-Man. Um, which means <laughs> that, like, what the fuck was the point of the spider? <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. But in the MCU, they don't even like explain the spider thing. We're just like, yeah, it just happened, and like, well, you yeah, because we know about it. You don't need someone to be like, how, so how that guy Batman again. We don't. We don't need Batman to be told to us again. Oh my god! I I mean, can't they're going to do it. Yeah, they're going to do it. They're going to do it with Robert Pattinson. I can't wait. I cannot What's wait. What's fucked up is Robert Pattinson's a really great actor, so it might be good. I mean, it's not <laughs> going to be good, and I know that, but it might be. It's not yeah. going to be. Yeah, Ben Affleck's a good actor. And yeah, I, 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 my heretical superhero opinion is Ben Affleck is the best Batman, and mm. he's he was just in terrible Batman films. It's like uh, Pierce Brosnan <laughs> was a very good James Bond in the worst James Bond films. Right. But... Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's fair. The thing was like good. the thing the that thing was like good. all the all the like Justice League, all the kind of Zack Snyder despite like Batman stuff. Like the story wasn't actually that bad. Like I know everyone I agree. I've had everyone, a discussion yeah, about this. Everyone shits on like Batman versus Superman, but I don't think the story was just that bad. It was just like the way that it was made, the way that it was just like so much. Uh, yeah, like the beats weren't bad beats. The directing of it really, really, really killed it. Like, can't emphasize that enough. But yeah. the beats on paper, you're like, oh, okay. So we, you have the like, um, the Wagnerian like forging a magic spear to slay the dragon, but it's Batman slaying Superman, and you have the like, it works on paper. It's just that Zack Snyder is an idiot, right? 
Like right. personally, like he is personally uh, um, very stupid, and that that you know that's a tough one to overcome. This is this is this is why things are going to get better with the Joker. Like, I genuinely think the Joker is going to be like a great a great movie, and I think it's going to like really, um, it will kind of reset like whatever DC is trying to do. And also, like, I feel like this is a really good time because my feeling about like cinematic universes is that like that kind of golden period of the cinematic universe is coming to an end. And if DC are able to kind of just make a string of like standalone movies that are like sort of related to each other and sort of like intertwined, but it's not like forced. Um, I think that they've, they've got something good that will, that will happen. I'm glad that you also share my seemingly heretical opinion based on what online says that uh, the Joker film with Joaquin Phoenix is probably going to be good. It is. And all all of us, like all the trash boys are going to go see it. Um, We're all going to dress up as a Joker to go see it. Uh, It is really just... Jared Leto Joker, though. Yeah, Jared, the, the best Joker, the one, the one, of the, the one of the purple Lamborghini who hangs out with Rick Ross for some reason, acts loud and confused in the theater when you see that it's not him, and be like, "What? Where's, where's Jared? What?" <laughs> Just really disruptive. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I yeah write like a letter of complaint to DC. <laughs> uh, yeah, it'll be good. I love movies. Movies are great. That is very good. Yeah, that's my take. Movies are good. It's a good take. Movies are good. Uh, books are good too. Uh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, should, yeah. Should sometimes we talk, about, should we talk more about the book before my publicist gets really mad that like I spent this show talking about like um, why Andrew Garfield Spider Man was amazing. Mm-hmm. You've, you've got very good publicists, by the way. Like, yeah, she's yeah, she's pretty good. She's pretty yeah, yeah. Like, very very much better at marketing books than I was when I did that very briefly. Oh no way! Um, and, um, she's very yeah, yeah. she's very um, very on it. Yeah. So well, well done, Pubsist. <coughs> I forget her name. Um, so one of the cool things that kind of struck me that I hadn't really thought about before or considered mm. as a possibility was the existence of Muslim alt right guys. Yeah, like, babe, that was that tr- seems really yeah. That part was extremely strange to me. Um, yeah, like yeah. like ontologically strange. Yeah. Why was it why was it ontologically strange to you? Because it doesn't it it seems um it seems strange to me that those identities and politics would cohabitate. Um I mean it's it's one of those things that the more that I sat with it, the more it sort of like clicked like, well, there's there's conservative strains of thought in every culture in the world and we sometimes frame especially the kind of myopia you can get being um, white and online, no matter your political alignment, that yeah. people respond predominantly to um, oppressive political pressure to them to a point where it flattens all these other character elements of them. And right. so just sort of it reclicking like, oh, no, they're, people are full people. And it's like, yeah. well, if I ignore that one aspect, I agree with all of this. Yeah, yeah. And was, yeah, it just it was it's. It's a necessary shake sometimes to be like, no, it, yeah. the world isn't quite as beautifully uh, crafted as you think. There's yeah, some weird snarls in there. <laughs> yeah, and I think like the thing about the alt-right stuff, the Muslim alt-right stuff, and maybe I don't think even alt-right is the right term because I think alt-right kind of denotes a very particular like cultural construct, which is like sort of linked to kind of white nationalism and um, kind of like Christian like. Like we didn't even say Christian traditionalism, but just like this notion of like traditionalism, root like 
that adopts and appropriates Christianity. Um, so like, I don't think alt-right is necessarily the right word to use, even though it is the one that we use. Um, but what I was trying to, uh, what I was trying to look at was because, you know, when we talk about like alt-right, we're also talking about a very specific element of internet culture. Um, one in which like, uh, you've got like young disenfranchised, like straight males for the most part who, um, like in the face of like a disorientating and changing world like one where like they like everyone else have have experienced like a decline in material prosperity or material security um what they've turned to is like this imagined notion of traditionalism which is like reinforced by the internet right so you know you find these like you know and you've seen the stories before like you found these like alt-right communities who are experiencing these like material declines, this political failure, like the catastrophe of neoliberalism. Um, but instead of kind of really thinking about like power relations, what they're kind of saying is that, oh, this has happened because of a series of like personal misfortunes, which I attribute to like changing cultural conversations on the internet where I spend most of my time. So I really hate it when like, I can't even say a slur word without someone saying that like that, you know, is an offensive term because that's an example of like, you know, political correctness gone mad or, you know, the existence of like women on gaming forums and how, you know, that seeing that as like an obstruction of um, like a traditionally male space and that extends then to kind of well where have like women also in, you know uh, intervened in traditional male spaces oh the workplace well um, you know yeah that woman from work I really hate and also she's the reason why I don't have like a long term girlfriend or a wife whereas like back in the 80s I could do that so with like the Muslim like <clears throat> like contingent what I was trying to do was locate like where this particular group of men were culturally because some stuff is very similar so like the people that i'm profiling are straight men who are experiencing declines in material wealth and prosperity but the thing that they're kind of clinging on to is this identity that they've been given in this case like islam and like being a muslim and this notion that like the way in you know the way where they have where they feel like they can reclaim their life is by sort of like reinforcing their islam through like you know reinforcing what a traditional version of islam means so then while like the christian alt-right guy has turned to like crusader iconography and everything to um like build like an aesthetic identity the muslims who are using it they're obsessed with like the ottoman empire right like they're obsessed with like you know um the kind of golden era for like islamic civilization where you could go you know you could live in like you know the ottoman empire and you can you could kind of you know hold concubines and still be like an intellectual and you could have like multiple wives and like they would all be obedient to you because you would be like you know a like graceful soldier living in like the greatest empire of that time um yeah maybe maybe i've forgotten my history here but wasn't like the Ottoman Empire kind of decadent at a lot of times. There was like yeah. a lot of like wine and uh, some of those wives weren't wives. They were young boys and yeah, so and like a lot of and a lot of people were doing a bunch of gay shit with their homies, right? Like <laughs> that's, it was that's who you do it with. You know, it's 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 what people be doing over there. But like they, you know, again with the alt right stuff, like you know what was you know um you know looking to kind of crusader iconography, like you know what was going on there like a bunch of really bad shit was going on 
in Europe as well. Like that, you know, Europe was a very decadent, like, you know, continent. Um, but, you know, even like harking, even going before, like as they kind of go towards like more ancient civilizations, like, you know, in each of these ancient civilizations that they see at their like peak, it's also like, you know, there's also like referential decadence, um, which they acknowledge at least aesthetically anyway. So like, you know how these like guys are obsessed with like architecture and everything and like glorifying like traditional Gothic style buildings and stuff like that. Like they like the aesthetic elements of that decadence and they like the, the, the aesthetic elements of that wealth, but they ignore kind of like the process in which like that stuff has to be done. And in many ways, that's kind of why their sort of worldview is like really incoherent. Right. Because to kind of get those like aesthetic treasures like requires a big degree of like, you know, decadence and it requires like a moneyed society. It requires like imbalances of power and ones that like will not work in their favor. But because on the online realm, like where you're sort of just accountable to yourself and you're acting just as an individual, um, you end up in a situation, you know, end up in a situation where they can be selective and there's not really much you can do to challenge them. Right. Um, there's not really much you can do to challenge that kind of like aesthetic world that they've built. Um, so that ends up like reinforcing this idea of like neo-traditionalism, which in like ground, like has no real basis in like grounded reality. And I think that was the case with like the Christian alt-right guys, but it was also the case with like the Muslim alt-right guys. Mm. Yeah. And on, on like the other hand, there's what you, well, I guess what a lot of people call act Twitter or bro twitter yes yeah like, uh-huh. that's that's another one that was kind of came out of left field for me <coughs> you as you're probably well aware you the only people you, you muslims you hear about in the um media are either terrorists or people like you know waving their index finger and shouting and yeah, yeah to yeah so what what's the difference between like a muslim bro and like a a white bro. Oh, I mean, like, they are both yeah. great, of course. They're, yeah, they're both just like dudes who love their homies and they love business um, and they love hanging out with like the real ones and they love saying slurs online. Um, yeah, like I, I, I feel like there's a lot of similarities between the two. I think like the thing about like the like Muslim bro Twitter is again that it's kind of like the language that it uses is like very kind of like Islamicized, it's very Arabized as well. Um, lots of like the people who kind of like I was talking about on bro Twitter are people who like want to curate like a version of online Islam which is very sort of like outwardly performative Um, you know so they are the ones who are like trying to enforce like or they're trying to like look at ways in which you can enforce like you know types of social conservative activities types of conservative like social conservative practices like on the internet and they exist in this place also where like the traditional confines that a physical religious space would offer so even basic things like gender segregation you know these are the this is the first time when like guys online like they go on twitter or something and they realize that like oh there's like loads of muslim women here and lots of them don't wear headscarves and lots of them use kind of crude language that i've never like heard anyone say before because i've been protected for so long so the way that they respond to it is like oh you know online is this like you know decadent place it's this place where like you know free mixing 
of the genders has kind of created a corruption where women are like openly like swearing and talking about you know sex and everything and i need to kind of stop it so then they intervene by saying that like oh you know sister you shouldn't be saying this you know stuff that like they would apply to kind of like the physical settings of a mask like they're suddenly trying to do online and for them it's more just to kind of like reaffirm this worldview that they have than anything else so um you know and i found that really interesting i found you know because so much of the book is about like how islam online is like a very individualized experience and it's still one that is in flux and it's one that is inherently disorientating regardless of like what side of the spectrum that you're on and for these guys it's very much like well i've kind of benefited from like patriarchal society i've benefited from like my islam as sort of like rewarded patriarchy and has kind of been built in such a way where like you know gender roles are inherently enforced and I don't know how to deal with an environment where suddenly those rules are kind of taken away and I'm my prior like I'm no longer prioritized so the way they respond to it is like well how do I kind of get that feeling that I have in the material real world into the online space so I mean as I mentioned before, like 99% of the information that we get in the media about Muslims is about, in some way, about terrorism or not uh, not assimilating to British culture and so on. And it's yeah. all very silly. But uh-huh. uh, you do uh, start and end the book with a discussion on this guy who tried to get you to join ISIS. Yes, yeah. Which is something I only do after like three or four beers. <laughs> I you have to be a little bit lit before I, I start thinking about joining ISIS. Yeah, you got to but... go. For, you got to be forward, though. Oh yeah, I've got a good ISIS story after after this bit. <laughs> yeah, who's what is... among us? Can I, can, what, what's the ISIS story? I'm interested. Oh, the ISIS story, thankfully, is very brief. It's so you know, I was, I was paying utilities through Venmo as as one does uh, yeah. to to your roommates, and uh, <laughs> I. I include beautiful notes. Um, normally, it's normally it is the multi-year running gag that I run a snake breeding organization for for side money, and I spend yeah. most of the rent money acquiring new snakes and snake breeding equipment. <laughs> um, just normal stuff. I've been trying to build a cohesive world for whoever the bank person is, so that if they happen to be following it, they can track the trials and tribulations of my snake breeding business. Because I'm mentally ill, um, and I find these things very, very, very uh, amusing. Uh, I decided to take a brief break to list in the notes that I was buying ISIS paraphernalia. Now, I want to phrase, be clear, I phrased it ISIS paraphernalia, and I did this two months ago. In a time frame which you might both be well aware, ISIS has since disbanded. The band. Presuming, of course, that the 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 acquisition of isis paraphernalia would be you know at wholesale value <coughs> venmo, venmo was not pleased with this um very very upset with me sent me in a they immediately froze my account and i had to talk to multiple people on the phone explaining that it was a poorly thought out obviously bad joke um wow. you got canceled by venmo and- i did Wow. Um, they they try to restrict your free speech. Uh, there's a guy I know who you should talk to about this. His name's Carl Benjamin. Um, <laughs> like you're ever Lovely interested. Guy. Yeah, um, he's, he's a cool he's got guy. Some, he's got some time free because his uh, political career yeah. didn't kind of fizzled out. <laughs> but, uh... Uh, he's he, he's a very cool and normal guy, um, and I definitely like the way that he wears suits. I think is very interesting. Yeah, he's just so regular. 
any anything can fit really you don't have to pay attention to sizing just yeah. do, do what you feel i was just like more mad because i was like you get so much money you get so much money from like patreon and all this stuff and like you can't even like go to like a as, as like a decent suit fitter and like as someone who is like let's just say vertically challenged myself a short king if you will <laughs> um i appreciate tailors in a way that like you know um i feel like lots of other people who are like taller don't have to worry about so when i see a fellow short king and i think like carl benjamin must be like five four or five five um when i see fellow short kings just ignore that and think that it's perfectly fine to just like go to asda george and like buy a like a school like a six formers suit um I mean, it's just like complete disrespect to I mean, all also, the other it also touches on how like the 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 alt-right in america really raised the dress game for racists like mm. you can't just go out the door racist as hell in like a schlubby t-shirt no <laughs> these motherfuckers have like 200 dollar haircuts now they right. got fitted suits with vests who wears a fucking vest the media, like, with a suit? Yeah. If the media is going to call you dapper, right? Which is what they were doing. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you saw this, but like when um, Generation Identity Europe kind of first became a thing, the Sunday Times ran this like big feature about how like they were like hipsters who like wore New Balances and skinny jeans, and I got really mad at that because the picture that they used, like none of them were wearing skinny jeans; they were wearing like slim fits, right? <laughs> Like the very basic slim fits that you can buy anywhere in any department store in like that generic kind of denim blue color. Um, and like the new balances they got were like kind of mid tier stuff that you would get at any department store. So what the article was basically saying was like, oh, these guys like go to shopping malls and they spend maybe an hour there like buying very basic clothes. And that warrants like a big article because, you know, what the fuck were they wearing before like i don't know like irony like or band t-shirts or something like that i don't know like you know oh call me out on my own show why don't you (laughs) (laughs) you know i only wear shirts with like cool like you know ironic slogans like honk if you're horny and stuff I'm not cool enough to know how to purchase things online. I barely am able to read. I normally have the dictation software turned on for my phone and for uh, and for my computer. Uh, <laughs> I could learn how to read. There's nothing. Nothing. I just am too lazy to. Yeah, yeah I mean, reading, just reading a point is there. Reading I'm too busy being ironic online. Reading is lame as hell. You know, actually, like, actually, this is a really fun thing. You know, um, this book was supposed to be done a lot earlier than it did and like half the reason why it took so long to write was because I just spent so much time procrastinating on Twitter and like my editor had to like intervene at one point and they were like look you're not going to get this done if you keep do you know do you know do you know what it was it was when like I was in so I went to America to like do a fellowship where my job was like to finish writing the book and instead of writing the book I caused an international crisis by like tweeting that I was like a pediatrician at a hospital turning kids Muslim um, and I got like so many, <laughs> and I got so many people mad, including like the hospital, where they phoned me up <laughs> while I was in America, and they were like, "Look, I know you think that this tweet is funny, but there are people calling this hospital right now, demanding to know where, who you are, and we keep having to say that you're not a doctor, and like this was supposed to be a joke." Um, 
<laughs> we have to keep explaining how you can't be turned Muslim by injections, and some of them keep demanding the injections, which is a whole <laughs> other layer of weird. We have to tell them we don't have them, and they're upset. They want to be Muslim, and we're like, you can be that. You just go to a ah. <laughs> no, I want. I want, I want, I want, I want the venom in my, I want the venom in my veins, and that's the origin story for venom, I think. Oh. <laughs> he's so he's Tom Hardy becomes Muslim. He was try, he was trying to, but they injected him with the wrong serum, and now, <laughs> now, now, now he's now he's venom, uh, which, which I guess is just like a spinoff of um, the TV show Jane the Virgin, where it was basically the same thing. What? Um, what? Oh no. I, um, Jane the Virgin, she bonds with a symbiote. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the origin story for Jane the Virgin, right? Like, so I don't know, like, I don't know, I, I haven't seen like a lot of it, but like the whole premise is that she accidentally gets pregnant because someone like inseminated semen, like the a semen, like, a sperm sample in her by accident. Oh, she right, okay. gets pregnant and stuff, and like that's the whole like basis of the story. So I'm just imagining that, but in the context of like, what if she accidentally got um got uh the the venom. Uh, injection. Got it. Okay. <laughs> multiverse. That's the multiverse, baby. You yeah. know. The, the, the version should cross over into the MCU, <laughs> which should also cross over into Venom. <laughs> right. I mean, there's nothing to say that <laughs> she doesn't next... exist in that universe. That's true. They they haven't proved that she doesn't exist there. They they could they could have her be there. They could have her. They could have her be two Venoms. Like she transitions from one Venom to another Venom, back and forth. Yeah. That's There's cool. a long-running uh, trash future joke about how all the films are going to come together into one giant eight-hour film. Yeah, yeah. and um, <laughs> I, I think that, that should happen. And but yeah. I think the villain in that film should be the moon from that really old silent film where the rocket goes in the moon's eye. Yeah, because that's like the yeah. original film villain. Did you... Wait, are you saying that all films will join into one film? Not all superhero films, but like all, all films all in films. one filmic. Yes, I mean, all... I mean. I mean, we don't know, but I think Riley, because this is one, this is like a Riley joke, and I think his thing was it's like all the superhero films from like every franchise will just like come together <laughs> for like a week long movie where like all your favorite, <laughs> all your favorite film characters will be on screen um, doing something, and then at the end of the movie, the um, you'll have this like big reveal where like you have this super rare superhero come out and be like, there will be more movies, and that will be it. I, I like the idea of a cinematic universe for all film, though, and the after-teaser trailer is for movies, too. Yeah. <laughs> this is like the, the sequel to yeah. movies. <laughs> we, have to, we might have to incorporate that into like another, another TF at some point. So how many of uh, you guys over there like Hungarian experimental films? <laughs> Satan Tango 2. It's got Ghost Rider in it. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm a big advocate for like the uh, the Withnal and I cinematic universe. Like, I think that that could and should be a thing. Um, so, fingers crossed that will happen, unless like more people get cancelled. Uh, Richard Richie Grant is a very lovely man, and he will oh. never be cancelled. Yeah, that's what that's what they all say. But you know, you can't you can't um, you can't guarantee that. I met him very, very briefly, and I got a good vibe off him. I can always tell when someone is going <laughs> to be cancelled in future. Oh, I've, got, I've got cancelled there. And, yeah, he, he he's going to stay around. Yeah, I, I should just, like, be employed by, like, government agencies and major corporations just to, like, sniff people while they go into job interviews and see if yeah. they're worthy of cancellation or not. 
yeah. fix the whole metal thing. You could just go right up to someone and be like, don't let them interview him. They can okay. interview the bassist. They can't interview this guy. This guy doesn't get to talk to people. <laughs> They're like, if he has a Twitter, delete it. Just make him <laughs> make, delete it. <laughs> so, to, to cap off, uh, yeah. what what is uh, what's next for you? I mean, obviously uh, more, more mail, more trash future. Yeah, trying not to get cancelled uh, is like my <laughs> main objective. Just like scouring through all my old social media feeds. Um, trying to figure out whether I said something racist back in 2008. Um, no, I think um, there's some um, uh, obviously from obviously more Mel stuff. Like um, I'm trying to get back into like I know this is going to be like a really boring answer, but I'm trying to just get back into a normal routine. So like I think because the past kind of especially the past six months or so have been so insane with work and like. I was pretty much like around the clock and it almost like ruined all my relationships with people. Um, I'm trying to kind of like now get back to a stage of normalcy. So, you know, catching up on sleep is a big thing and like making sure I'm working normal hours, you know, seeing like friends. I wasn't on like trash feature for ages towards the end of last year. Cause I was just working constantly. Um, and it was really bizarre because it was like I was writing this book while they were recording and everything because we all work in the same office. So now I'm trying to kind of do more trash feature and like we're going we're going on tour soon. <coughs> like, oh, you, you come to Manchester? Uh, we might be doing actually. We were still trying to work out dates, but I know we're definitely going to Cambridge. We're doing Edinburgh. Um, I a think festival the, in Edinburgh. Uh, yes, yeah. Provided okay. that the provided that we the venue that we've got works out um we've got some plans for like doing some collab like stateside stateside collabs with like other people for trash future so keep an eye out for that um and at the moment i think i'm just trying to kind of enjoy like the book and like i'm really interested to see what people will think about it and um you know what they take away from it and uh like i do have some ideas for like a second book but i don't really want to seriously kind of go back to that for another few months as someone who's written a couple books before, I totally understand it. That shit sucks oh. sometimes. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like also, I don't know whether, whether this was the case for you, but for me, because I had this idea in my head for so long that like getting to kind of write about it in a book form was just like an extension of that. So it was kind of like, oh, I've been thinking about this for like a year or so. So now I just need to think about it in a different way. Whereas when you're, when it's, when it's like second book, it's like, okay, well, now you've got to come up with, like, a new idea. Mm, and yeah. an idea that because you've been working so much on your first one, you haven't really had time to entertain anything else. Um, so there's, you know, so the processes, I think, is really different. Because yeah, you, don't, a... you don't have a passion project anymore. It's now just like, oh, well, how do I kind of, like, ride the waves of this, ride, like, the waves of this momentum on this book to kind of pitch something else. Yeah, the the parallel in music is that you have your entire career to write, or up to your first album to write your debut, and then yeah. you have two years to write your follow-up. <coughs> it's, yeah. What's weird is that eventually gets easier for certain people um, that you, because also the process of, like, radically rewriting and reworking an outline and chapters and, you know, oh, this chapter's great, but we need to bring some of that material earlier because it comes out of left field here. You need, like a lot of that stuff happens less and less because since everything's happening on the fly, yeah, yeah. there's no real effective way to do that. Yeah. So you, a lot of writers fall into that like beautiful, uh, uh, just repeating pattern of like, I write it, the editor does their thing and they publish it, yeah. but I got to write the new one. 
And they're like, oh, that's why your material's bad now. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I think I think this is part of me that's also like I don't know because I'm I'm very fortunate to kind of work in like the publishing world where you know I'm publishing you know articles every week and I'm also editing articles every week. So I think for a lot of like writers that I know, their thing is very much like oh you know I'm I've been published, but now I've got to wait for like two three years before like any of my written work kind of sees daylight again. Um, whereas in my case, it's very much like, well, you know, you, you know, your writing is seen every week by like people. Um, so my relationship with like writing books is fundamentally different because of that. Mm. Um, and also there's this part of me that's like, oh, you know, well, if this is the only book that I ever write and I don't have like another idea, like that's completely fine by me. Um, I, there's no kind of like yearning desire to kind of write a second one. My agent on the other hand is very much like you need to do this now because like, this is the very short period of your life where people will actually think that you're smart. Um, and sooner or later, people are just going to define you as like the guy who just talks about mid 2000s anime on trash future. And like, that's when nothing's going to happen. So like you have this short window where people still think that you're intelligent to pip something. I, I love literary agents. <laughs> yeah. they, they keep it brutally real. <coughs> yeah. that are sometimes deeply dispiriting. <laughs> i love yeah. it uh i'm not sure this uh given given the actually like <coughs> wonderful and very enviable uh trajectory of of uh your career so far at least that's that's been shown to the internet i'm not sure if you've exactly gone through this but i imagine gareth has of uh pitching people and getting back the very strange letter that they they loved your novel it was beautifully written excellent prose they're not going to publish it there's no value and you're yeah. like wow Thanks. <laughs> I, think, I used I think to we... send people those letters. That used to be my job. So <laughs> it's it destroyed so many lives. It's a I think, mind fuck. <laughs> I, think, I think with novels, it's really different. Um, yeah. <laughs> like with novels, it's very much like, because you're investing so much of yourself. And also just because of like the way that publishing works, where you have to kind of write a manuscript. Um, or you have to write like a good chunk of that manuscript before you sell it whereas like i sort of remember with like my thing because like this is where nonfiction, i think is just like a massive joke in that like my 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 pitch for the book was very much like a two-page thing which was like um oh this is generally what i find interesting and i actually don't even know if it's going to work i just think that it might be fun to do um and when i tell people that like especially fiction writers because like a lot of my yeah, friends like we fiction jealous. writers they get so angry. They get oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I won't deny the anger. I spent like, 10 years yeah. and 500 pages just to get, like, 40 guys in New York tell me that, no, you're wasting your time. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, like, dark. And like, then, they, then they just wonder why you've just raised a generation of posters who, <laughs> like, you know, for us, publishing is just very much, like, what is the dumbest thing I can think of on my commute, on my way to, like, my shitty job? What do you mean you spent seven hours drafting a cum tweet and it's not even published? <laughs> like, look! <laughs> those are the best people. I feel like I've had a couple of those guys who are like, I've just tweeted something stupid and then you have like a grammar reply guy. Um, <laughs> it's just like, oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Very good. I do find it really wild judging like the, the shape of your body of work has this totally different timbre de depending on the direction you come at it. Like the, the book doesn't, show um a tremendous amount of the tremendous posting ability that you have on twitter it's incredible yeah, uh, yeah i feel like <laughs> yeah, kind of well that was very deliberate for obvious reasons yeah. um which is that like obviously posting is a very different thing i also work with an editor who isn't like extremely online 
and has had to kind of like understand lots of online culture because of me. Um, something that I feel like she is very kind of angry about me, <laughs> angry at me about. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I think also like um, I was aware that like the audience I was going to write this for. Because, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, the audience I was going to write this for are not kind of, like, the supremely yeah. online kinds. One of the interesting things is, like, when when you guys reached out to me, my editor, my uh, my publicist, Alison, was like, why do, like, these guys want to interview you? Because they sort of, like, don't seem like an academic podcast, <laughs> like someone who would really be interested in, like, the type of subject that you're writing about. Um, and you're not the only ones who have reached out. Like, a bunch of these kind of, like, left-wing, ostentatiously, le- like, ostentatiously left-wing podcasts have reached out to me as well to do interviews and I've always been really surprised by it um, because it doesn't feel as if like it doesn't feel as if like the material naturally lends itself to the format of like leftist podcasting or like leftist irony humor um so yeah like I feel like that was it and it was kind of like it wasn't that I didn't try like I feel like there are elements where I tried to kind of (laughs) have the kind of quirky and slightly kind of bizarre online kind of culture aspects to this book um but there were definitely like stuff i had to like take out like there were things where it was just like this is far too online for like even the most kind of switched on people in our circle and if you put if you put this in the book like no one is going to understand what you're saying well i think we actually get (coughs) hints of this this capability from you with the sort of hybrid form writing that you do for mel like my absolute favorite one is one that you did recently, and it's The Men Who Loathe the Moon. Oh my it's, god, yes. yeah, it was that so was good. amazing. I, I mean... fucking love it. I link it to people all the time. It's absolutely incredible, especially because yeah. it, it transitions very smooth. And this is, this is sort of an indication of like the level of like grandeur and beauty to your writing in the book, of it transitions very smoothly from this really fucking absurd premise in what may or may not be a real anecdote. I don't think it really matters for the piece. But transitions very smoothly into this very strange but elucidating sort of historical dive into yeah. anxieties uh, the Earthbound have had with heavenly figures and how this has sort of internal psychological parallels and yeah. sort of the Jungian dappling to to hating the moon. Um, and it's like it it never resolves the the audience <coughs> of it never resolves yeah. itself. You deliberately keep keep that from happening because that's one of the powerful engines of it but you just you slowly pivoted into just like a sincere and informative and beautifully written non-fiction piece about <laughs> it's, uh, thank so, you so the fact oh you go on i was gonna say like my editor alana levinson who's based out in la like she's kind of like the brains behind a lot of kind of how this stuff is framed um so like often what will happen is like during our edit meetings like also because i'm very ill prepared for a lot of our edit meetings so i'm kind of like um yeah, like, I kind of remember this story about, like, my friend and, like, when we went to this party, we got really drunk. Well, he got really drunk and, like, on our way home, he just started shouting at the moon. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can do something with that or, like, and what she'll do then is kind of be like, oh, this is, like, really bizarre, but also, like, a really kind of male, like, orientated kind of thing. And actually, how can we take this thing that's so kind of, like, obscure and kind of stupid and something that you don't think about and how do you kind of, like, make it to this bit of content and it turned out really well like even i was really surprised about how like bizarre the whole thing was but also like how much of a history of like men trying to kind of like the moon <laughs> wanting to destroy it for like just the stupidest reasons i'm surprised <laughs> you didn't cite the mr show sketch on account of 
there's a whole sketch about deliberately blowing up the moon for no other reason than we can. I think I was looking for, trying to look for a clip for that, and I couldn't find it. Or maybe I did find it, but it got cut out. I can't really remember. Um, yeah, but I know that there are like various examples, like various documented yeah. examples in pop culture of like people who just hate the moon for like no real reason. You raise a very interesting question. You said your editor described hating the moon <coughs> as a very male thing, and that just seems... Uh, I, I'm curious about that, if there's data behind that. Like, have women never... Because I've literally, personally, gotten drunk and yelled at the moon. I felt her, compelled to at the time. I feel... Her, her, <laughs> argument, her argument is that more, like, because, like, women kind of generally have, like, a much more... And she's, like, someone who's really into astrology and everything um and being in LA being in LA like astrology is like massive right yeah. so um and as a result of it being massive you also have like guys who are like really massively like rejectionist of like this kind of upsurge of interest in <laughs> astrology so for her it's very much like oh like women's affinities with the moon like is you know there's part of it that's like rooted in like an interest in astrology and like an interest in kind of like celestial beings some of it is rooted like biologically so like there are stories about how like you know moon cycles and like periods and stuff like that so for her it's very much like oh like because of like women's affiliation with like lunar culture so to speak um like the male experience of that is like seems to be much more hostile and retrospective and for her it's also very much like even if this is bullshit, like, it could just be a really fun thing to write. So, like, you should just do it. And I think the great thing about Mel also is that, like, because we're not, like, the New Yorker, because we're not kind of one of these, like, magazines that takes itself super seriously, like, we can afford to do that. And it's it, it, it's really <coughs> worth noting that it's, like, it's, it's that you don't necessarily take topic selections seriously. Because the writing itself is actually, like, incredibly well composed and incredibly, like, it, it lends itself to, uh, Gareth and I have talked about this before, Mel being one of the few general interest places that's actually worth reading. Because the articles are both interesting and well written. Um, and it's, yeah, so it's uh, deeply not surprising that your book wound up being as like um lush and human as it was like it, it's more about showing that human portraiture of people including uh some really shitty and dumb people because it's like yeah, yeah. We want to show <laughs> um thank you yeah absolutely yeah, yeah that's I mean, it, it is a damn good book and people should go out and buy it yes um, it's so, out on thursday so i was just about to ask that and you're <laughs> probably by the time this goes up you will have done a big opening for it at dawn books in london yeah, uh, which I've been to so many times for really uh-huh. badly attended and very depressing openings. I hope yours isn't anything like that. Yeah, I hope not. Um, I'm very like anxious about it. Like part of the reason why like I'm just so awake right now is because I'm just super super anxious about it. So hopefully, hopefully yeah. by the time it's like come out, I haven't said anything racist. In- invite <laughs> everyone what? you know. Like go through your entire phone book. Just invite <laughs> everyone. Like you you can't over invite people to book launches. Yes, that's true. Also, because so many of them flake anyway. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly it. You gotta, you gotta fill them seats. You gotta invite ten to get one. <laughs> yeah. Tell yeah. them there will be free wine, champagne, drugs, anything. Just yeah. whatever it takes to get people in the door. Because book yeah. launches, oh, but they can, they can go so badly. And so tell them that. you hired a guy and he's going to teach everyone in attendance spells like not not like make coins disappear but like make your enemies disappear like spells that'll Fireballs, get lightning just 
Yeah, I've, you've got. Have a you ever real wanted magician, to learn uh... real magic? We're going to teach you real magic spells. <laughs> that, that's you will be the enemy of around, every but, angel. But mm. so yeah, people at home go out and buy this book because it is yeah genuinely fascinating, interesting, and read Mel unless you yeah. You, you probably do that already because it's unless, great. Unless you like Vice, in which case, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Then there's no hope for you, really. Yeah, uh, you're, um, you're an enemy of this podcast. We go out of our way to shit on Vice pretty much all the time, even when it's not applicable. Yeah, it just feels good. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and um, yeah, listen, to Trash Future, because um, it's like extremely pro- funny. Yeah, probably the only good British podcast about politics. I know real real politics is good. Um, yeah, there's a good ones. There's a good ones. Paul Ferry other is also really good. Um, I don't know that one. But in um, in the UK, everyone just uh, they just like listen to the podcast. Uh, what's what's the one? Um, the one where the guy has like sex with his dad. Uh, the porno one. Which oh, one was it? My my dad that... wrote a porno. Yes. Yeah. I don't I've understand. I've never how heard that. I don't. I've, Wait, I keep that seeing he, it. But... He he did what? He had sex with his dad. I mean, probably. No, that, that's come town. I've I've never listened to the show before. I can only assume that if it's gone on for this long, like okay. there be some weird like shit that that's happened. And um, yeah, also folks home, if you you're still in the mood to give people stuff, our, our Patreon is there. There's a Trash Future Patreon which has got like a thousand times more. <laughs> we only just started. It was still getting there. And um, I keep pitching bonus shows to Gareth. We keep he keeps hearing my pitches. You got you'd yell at him about about my pitches. Some of them are god awful, and I want you to hear them. <laughs> yeah. We should just have a pitch show one day. We could just record you pitching me shows and me saying and, just, <laughs> and let 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 the audience decide based on my pitches which they would like to hear. Yeah, kind of like a Dragon's Den kind of deal. Okay, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll take the idea under consideration and not do it. And it's officially um, pitched. <laughs> yeah. And rejected. And um, so to play out the episode, because we do, you know, also play music on here, we got a band from uh, New York. They're called Imperial Triumphant, which sounds fashy to me, but apparently they're okay. And they're kind of, I, I have no idea how to describe these guys. Oh, I do. Yeah. Oh, it's oh like, I do jazz classical black metal doom but also that kind of scronky primacy sound they and they also they legit like jazz like they had uh they were interviewed by someone for like name five jazz records just for our little clickbaity whatever i work in that field and that's just people click on that shit they won't read a review (laughs) of a new record people don't give a fuck about current art but you give them a listicle about any fucking topic in the world they'll click on it no. I it sucks, but it's just real. So they're like, give us a, a thing. And everyone was expecting, okay, it's a black metal band citing jazz bands. They're going to say they cut really deep with some of their selections and were really, really quite in, insightful about their comments on them. So it's like, it's a legit uh, influence. It's it's not like they heard one saxophone on a metal record and were like, I want that. They like They legit love even some very straight ahead and some very avant-garde jazz music and just blend that in with their uh, their sort of experimental extreme metal stuff. Yeah. And their past album was a concept album about New York, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool because most 
concept albums about stuff in metal are about the woods or snow. Um, Sometimes it's about elves. Though. Also, yeah, elves. Uh, and this this new one they've got out um, called Incest. I guess it's that's not that's not that's yeah that's not a new one actually that's a re-release of an old one no oh no that came out a couple of years ago but I think it's getting a physical re-release because oh that's um, one okay that that's one okay it's not new okay because via luxury just that showed up on a lot of year-end lists like it showed up on mine so Um, it's a re-release not a new one but it's it's still you know it's worth checking out. Yes, it's very that's, why you're that's the way I describe it. Like if you've heard Aransi Pazuzu and the way it sounds like you're on a boat that's all fucked up, um, this makes you have that same kind of like seasick, queasy, like lurching feeling to the riffs. Yeah, and it's also about the works of the Marquis de Sade. So, you know, we always say on the show that metal bands should, should read something other than um, Lovecraft and Tolkien, but not de Sade. Can you please oh. not do like something else? Like go go a little further. Come on, guys. But I think they grudgingly. I think Desad is good, but <laughs> I don't bring that up normally because that's a whole fucking thing. It's better to just you fuck him. <laughs> Cancelled. Okay. You're like I don't want to have this conversation. Yeah, he sucks. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Very complex figure. But whatever. But you know, pe- people who. Uh, cite the Marquis de Sade as an influence in the 21st century uh, are probably either weird sex nerds or weird rapists. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's like Nietzsche in that 99% of the people who cite him really don't get what it was about, <sighs> so you just learn never to cite him. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's that guy. So, But this album is about his work, and the song I'm going to play is called Kaleidoscopic Orgies. It's seven minutes in the descent into utter shrieked madness i love it um yeah it and this one is on redefining darkness records uh along with another a lot of quite good stuff so um yeah if you like this check out their earlier stuff because that was like we said the previous album kind of blew up big and everyone really loved it and it's about new york baby yay (laughs) i'm walking here it's Mm -hmm. an anti-capitalist album about new york yeah and they're, they're talking here about the postmodern, lifeless corpse of post-industrial New York City. Yeah, they're probably good folks, which you don't get to say about a lot of people in the metal world. Uh, they're so, they're involved in anti-fascist activism, so that's they're actually like they put their money where their mouth is and stuff. It's nice, good guys, good guys. Okay, we should have them on the show. It'll be good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so listen to this. Uh, bye. Um, follow Miyaki. Listen to Hussein's podcast. Uh, read his journalism and um yeah enjoy this terrifying miasma of scronky guitar sounds <laughs> 